Welcome out there, rock and rollers all over the world, to the 40th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recording here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road, and can't thank you enough for helping us to make this the 40th episode. You know, the show started with two old friends who just kind of wanted to catch up over COVID, make sure we were all okay. We do five minutes of, how are you? How's your family? How are you taking all this? And then suddenly it would be an hour and a half of, eh, what are you listening to? Have you heard this lately? Have you checked out this band before? Have you heard this new album? And then I realized, now that's that's what the show needs to be, is a podcast about the two of us sharing our love, knowledge, and unquenchable thirst for the minutia, the little details of every song, every band, every album ever. And this week, on our 40th, we commemorate an album that was very important to both of us growing up, really more so for Action Jackson, because the Cold Sonic Temple kind of came on the scene with a big hit, Firewoman, his big radio and MTV hit. It was cool. They had style. It was hard rock. It was perfect for the era of Guns N' Roses and Def Leppard that we were living in. And for rock and roll fans, it was a big hit. Really turned out to be the cult's biggest hit, certainly in America. Of course, we already did an episode on the cult Love. That was episode number 21 on Love, the second album from the cult, which we do adore. But Electric came after that, and then Sonic Temple was the one that kind of broke them out of their shell, broke them out of that goth rock kind of post-punk thing that they were kind of being marketed as, and put them into the mainstream as hard rock And with big hits like Edie Chow Baby and Sweet Soul Sister, it spent some time in the American charts. It's probably the one owned best by American rock fans around the world. There was a 30th anniversary five-disc edition that was pretty amazing for you hardcore cult fans. And so we dive a little bit into that as well. It was my opportunity to see them a couple of years ago on the 30th anniversary tour at Hammersmith Odeon. But we're going to let Jackson lead the way a little bit more on this one because it meant so much to him. It was an album that really touched him that he found early on that not everyone else knew about. That really helped him turn over a new leaf as far as how to find good new rock and roll out there and not just just be subjected to the same old stuff that we were raised on as far as classic rock radio goes. Now, a little bit of housekeeping. If you want to reach out to us, you can get us on Twitter. You can DM us or follow us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. And you can get us anywhere, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can go to www uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com to check out all of our past episodes to see where all you can find us. Really appreciate all the support you give us out there. And so for our 40th show, and we really appreciate everything you've done out there, listeners, to help us get to this point, we're going to reward you with really a five-disc review, although it's one classic album, very dear and dear to the hearts of me, and especially Action Jackson. And that's the Colts 1989 classic Sonic Temple, right here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I was, uh, I was excited when you reminded me that we were talking about doing this because I like it when I know you're the expert. You know, I mean, sometimes we come in with our own stuff. Sometimes maybe I know a little bit more. Uh, and certainly I've led you on some of these shows where it's like, Jackson, I know you don't know this record. I know you don't know this, this guy, but listen to these few things and then talk to me about it. Obviously, I know the cult and, you know, we did a show on their album Love. I know Sonic Temple because it's what really introduced me to them in the first place. But this is like one of the key finds of your life is the cult, I feel like. like. This is a band that you really take ownership of. That is correct, yes. And when I was I was in high school, so it had to be, what is, what's this come out, 89? So 89 mm-hmm. or 90. And looking for, again, just looking for something new. Give me something new. It's not that I don't love all the stuff that came before it, but something new. Mm-hmm. So Firewoman comes on the radio. I said, well, now this, what is this? Who is this? What's going on? Again, back then you didn't have the internet. You kind of had to just start finding stuff out on your own. Right. Okay. This is a band called The Cult. Okay, cool. I like that. That's pretty cool. But again, back then records were expensive. So ugh, all right. Well, they're cool. Thank you. Listen to it a couple more times. Then Sun King comes on. All right, wait a minute. Is this off the same record? Because now we got two songs that I really like. So maybe it's time to jump in. Maybe it's time to take that money out of the vaults, <laughs> go down to the Sam Goody and make a purchase. So you heard Sun King on the did, radio? Correct. Yeah. Okay. That was a that was a radio track in out of New York. Okay. They played it a lot. So I went down, purchased Sonic Temple. And yeah, basically just fell in love. I mean, I listened to this so many times I had to stop listening to it. I'm like, you're going to go insane <laughs> if you listen to this anymore. I don't think there's a bad track on the record. It's, it's exactly in the wheelhouse that we live in. Chunky, guitar-based, right. straight-ahead rock and roll. Billy Duffy is, in my opinion, one of the greatest rock guitarists that's ever lived. He's, it's, he can play fast. But he plays a he plays like the old ACDC, like real, like the the riffs are they're accessible. You can see, you think, you know what? I could I could probably figure that out. Mm-hmm. But he could also play the solo stuff, which is the face melting that I do enjoy. And then Ian Asbury has a fantastic rock voice, like he just has that gravelly. You know it as soon as you hear it. And they write great songs together. Yeah, they it's have just for a it's long phenomenal. Time. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. Well, that's cool. And I'm just looking this up. You're right. Your recollection is right as it usually is. Firewoman's obviously the big single. It's what kind of caught everybody. I remember seeing it on MTV 
thinking mm. that's a killer stage you know the way they kind of set it up their backs are turned to it and you kind of see the outline yeah. of jamie or you know and i'm like oh man that's good rocking like you say good chunky riff rock and roll and and we can get into you know the 30th anniversary edition here which is not only a lot of great music but yeah but it's got you know uh interviews with billy and ian and, and even with jamie because he was a member yeah. of the band back then which Kind of helps set the stage. But yeah, it said Sun King came in here. I guess it was released maybe in the UK, but uh, got in the modern rock tracks. Like you say, you know, rock radio stations were, were picking up on that one too. Before they, of course, did Edie, the obligatory, you know, bad boys got to have a, a yes. sweet song to a girl, you know, Heart those gold. days, right? Yeah, they all had them. Uh, it was a prerequisite because they were kind of reinventing themselves. Love had not been that far before. And in the way Billy talks about it, you know, love to electric to Sonic Temple, it really wasn't that long. They kind of saw it as all one big thing, which is interesting because they're very different on love versus electric. And then I guess Sonic Temple kind of blends the both of them, but it also sounds like something completely new to me. Yeah. And, and I, for the longest time, I didn't realize how much of a train wreck that the, the record after love was it was originally supposed to be called peace Peace. Mm -hmm. they had recorded the whole thing they apparently just hated it it was bloated it wasn't what they wanted to do it was the record company pushing 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 and they just finally said no we're not doing this they rushed into the studio with rick rubin and came up with electric which they liked a lot more but they go into the whole thing about how they really didn't have the time and money right to do it exactly the way they wanted it to. They, I guess they moved out of England to the U.S., and it was very refreshing. They, you know, Guns N' Roses were on top then. That's what they wanted. They wanted straight-ahead rock and roll, which they got in America. And so, yeah, then they hooked up with Bob Rock, who it, Billy says in the in the book, he's like, I didn't know who this guy was. Right. There was a, there was a, yeah, he was in a band from Canada, but I mean, there's a lot of bands from Canada no one's heard of before. Right. I'm like, oh, okay. So yeah, th- this was kind of the, I mean, this was definitely the apex of their popularity. Uh, from there, they kind, you know, they they fell into the trap like everybody else in the late '80s of being seen as a hair metal band. Which I mean, let's face it, folks, that's not the case. That's not. The and they kind of just. They, they got kind of pushed to the side after this. So this was basically the, the apex of them being as popular as they were ever going to be in the United States. Yeah, and it's like they were trying to find... Hmm, the music business has to put you in a box so they can market you, right? They, they have to give Correct. you a label, whether it's, you know, okay, you're a new romantic or you're a, you know, punk or you're a psychedelic pop or, you know, all the goth rock, all, you know, whatever that is. It's just the way they're trying to to sell you so they know which magazines to put you in, which record stores to get you to, who, who, which venues to play, which bands to tour with. It's amazing that they had Guns N' Roses open for them. But I think they also opened for Guns N' Roses once they hit big, you know, which is is kind of cool and interesting. But it's like, like, no, you're this goth band that this band uh, did this a record love, which is really cool. And it's not exactly, uh, you know, any one genre right now. Then you do electric, which is not you're trying to go more mainstream or harder rock. But it's it's all muddled. You had two takes on it. The second take 
was better, but still not finished. And they're like, let's go to America because they're not trying to tell us where this dream pop or goth rock or whatever we are. In LA, there's a lot of great rock and roll happening. Yes, Guns N' Roses owned LA back then. It's where the Rats and the Motley Crues and all those people had come up from, the Quiet Riots, you know, just a few years before. And so they're like, yeah, we're going to do that. And, you know, for Billy, it was all about, uh, I don't know, it seemed like it was, he admitted there was a lot of style over substance at this time for him. And that's, well, and that's the part that, that's the part that really stinks about the music business, especially back then. You had to, like you said, you had to fix, fit in a box. You had to be able to be marketed because if you couldn't, then they weren't, they weren't going to give you any time of day. You run into the problem of you've got the artists who want to have, have a creative vision. This is the music that I hear in my head. This is the music I want to put out. And you've got the record people saying, I want to sell copies. That's mm-hmm. I don't care what you sound like. I don't care what you look like. I don't care about you. I just want to make money. So you have these two worlds colliding. Right. And so, yeah, you have to fit in a box. They were more heavy metal than anything else, I guess, at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I remember going back to that Firewoman video saying, man, these guys look really cool. Yeah. I mean, you had Asbury with the long hair and the, the black leather outfit. Yeah. Uh, Duffy was more like the biker dude with the jeans on. He always played the uh, Les Paul about as low as the strap would go. Which, which I, cool. I guess Rick Rubin kind of forced him to do from what it said in this booklet on the 30th anniversary. He's like, you got to put that big, you know, Holly, hollow body Gretsch or whatever you got, you got to put that away and just play through a Marshall and play this Les Paul here. And it, it was his signature look and sound. Yeah. And, and maybe it caught on. He's still to this day. I mean, he goes back and forth. He definitely still has the Gretsch, mm-hmm. the, the Falcons, but I mean, yeah, he, he has his own line of uh, signature Les Pauls. Yeah. It just, it, it looked cool. It sounded cool. It, they were cool too, because they were, it, they had kind of the American sound, but they were from England. And right. that just automatically in my book makes you cooler. Always. You kind of stand out. Yeah. And all, Always, man. It just seems like your music is better. All my favorite bands have been British over the years. There's a few American exceptions. And Rush is from Canada. ACDC is from Australia. But, you know, it's the Brit. I'm an Anglophile. Bob Rock says he's an Anglophile. It's not like we are, man. I mean, it's kind of where it all kind of comes from for us. Yeah, and that's, that's one of my – and I've talked to people from England, and it makes me upset because we in the United States, we invented rock and roll. You can't argue that. You can't take that away from me. We invented rock and roll. And then they took it and made it so much better because all the cool bands, I mean, from the 60s to the 70s into the 80s, all the cool bands came out of England. There were definitely some from the United States, but the big ones came from the UK. And yeah, it just kind of gave them to me in 1989 gave them more credit because I'm like, oh man, yeah, Stones were from England and The Who and all of those big rock bands. Yeah, these guys are cool. So it hits the scene. It, it, it hits me in the Midwest. You know, uh, I well, MTV was still pretty big at that point. And to see that yeah. video on MTV, I'm like, that is hot, man. That is awesome. Oh, no, but they played it on the radio a lot too. That's the thing. Before it was, no. now it's just classic rock. And that's it. Nothing new. It used to be that rock stations would play some classic stuff and then whatever was going on today. And you could break out a dream theater or something like that on the radio. And the cult were no exception. It was a big hit for them, really. I mean, mainstream rock tracks got to number four. 
But see, alternative airplay got to number two. Like I said, they were still kind of in both worlds at this point because they, in the love electric, they were kind of in the 120 minutes crowd. But with Sonic Temple, this is, and the look of them, they're clearly more of the headbangers ball crowd is what they're kind of aspiring to with this. Correct. Yes. But, and then you run into the, the deal with the people who fell in love with them during the love times. Now like, well, now you're, you know, now you're something totally different sound is different mm-hmm. but i mean is it really i mean it, it, it i don't know i can listen to the whole catalog back to front and see the evolution mm-hmm. and think yeah it's, it's just part of the journey but i think there are people who are who were upset with that probably this time you sold out you know now you're trying to sound like everybody else even though i mean if i listen to guns and roses and then listen to this I mean, it's guitar driven, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's not the same thing at all. It's not, it's hard and it's heavy, but it's not the same. Yeah, it's not as raw as Guns N' Roses seem to be. Obviously, this one with Bob Rock was, was pretty well produced, and there's a lot of tracking going on. I mean, it thought, Correct. Like, was it 48 tracks? That's a lot to manage, you know. But, but you know, if you do an Edie Child Baby with strings and all that kind of thing, it's, yeah. it's, it's necessary. And, Although it wasn't an enormous hit, I certainly remember that being all over MTV as well. Because maybe the song didn't do as well, the radio didn't sell as well. But, you know, you shut down Times Square and you put an orchestra in there and that's going to get time on MTV. Plus it's the valley. Yeah, and, and even that song has a, ha, it, yes, it's slower, yes, it's acoustic, yes, it has strings. Asbury sounds fantastic on it. There's a great solo uh, from Duffy. And then there's the whole thing about, you know, wait a minute, this is a real person, Edie Sedgwick. So, you know, as a teenager, you're kind of like, well, you know, what's she all about? Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's this is something a little deeper than, oh, Andy Warhol. Well, you know, I'm, I know who Andy Warhol is now from this. Now I'm pretty <laughs> cool. I mean, oh, yeah, and you're just trying to find your way in the world. You're very you're cultured just, now. Yes. Thanks to the exactly, culture. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. On my the beginnings of my journey to be the international man of mystery you have to know about <laughs> Andy you Warhol. <laughs> anyway, so you know that was that was cool because it was it wasn't just about chicks and cars. It was a real person. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to, the the song was I don't know. I mean, I like it. I, I think it, it's a departure. It kind of fits into the ballad thing that they kind of quote unquote had to do then. But I mean, I like the song. I think it's pretty cool. Well, it's interesting to me that it's, you know because Ian's. <sighs> Ian like, suffers from more than just LSD, lead singer's disease. He, he's got some kind of spirituality thing going on, which, which makes him the soul that he is. But I think it also makes him kind of hard to deal with sometimes. I don't know. It, it seems like Billy's a little more all business, except that he didn't like to practice. He admitted, he's like, what's Slash doing practicing for three hours before he goes on stage? I got three hours to go meet chicks, you know? What am I practicing for? Well, I think you to be to be successful, you have to have that. It, it, you were talking about the the lead singer disease. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is a story that repeats over and over and over again with different bands. You want that when you when you want it, you love it. Right. This is my guy. He's out there. He's the king of the world. Yeah. This is the greatest band. He ever. has the cool lyrics. And he's turning on the crowd, right? You know, he's, he's, yeah, he's he gives a great interview. You know, all that shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now the problem is when that bites you on the behind mm-hmm. when it's like oh now we don't know where he is now he doesn't want to perform right. now he's in a bad mood uh so again it's the it's the art versus business of 
I don't care what you feel like. I, we have to go on and play for these people. The tour has to go on. Mm-hmm. And and it, it, it's, it, like I said, it's a story that it, it, all great front men, I think, have that to some degree. They have, You have to have that. And then on the flip side, you have to have the business guy who says, no, I, I understand you might not like this, but we have to do we this. Do we, we have to keep marching forward or we're going to die. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have one job. You got to get mm-hmm. up and sing. You know, at nine o'clock or, you know, at 745, whenever it is, you know, you got to, that's the one thing you've got to do. You want to bang a bunch of chicks? Great. You want to go get some killer fashion and get your face in a bunch of magazines? Awesome. Good for you. One thing you have to do is do the gig, man, you know. Yeah. (laughs) And there was a story, uh, this is probably circa like late. 90s, early 2000s, maybe, where they were on tour with Aerosmith. They mm-hmm. were, uh, Aerosmith was the headliner, the Cole was the opening band. They told them, okay, this is the stage setup. There's a, there's a ramp at the, at Steven Tyler's ramp or something. You are absolutely never to go on this ramp. Uh-oh. Never, never to touch this. This is not for you. And Asbury said, ah, I don't think so. And went <laughs> and just went all over, ran up and down it. And then they got kicked off that tour. And, you know, it, it, the Billy's thing was, you know, you had one thing you weren't supposed to do <laughs> right. when they made it real clear. But his thing was, no one tells me what to do. I do whatever I want. I am a star. I do what I want to do. So again, fan- when it's working for you, it's fantastic. Right. When you're being kicked off the tour, you're like, why couldn't you follow instructions? <laughs> because that's not him. That's not me. I don't do that. Okay? Fantastic. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, so you've listened to this a million times. I mean, I, I'll let you lead us, man. Do you want to go track by track? Even the ones that weren't singles on here you know like american horse mm-hmm. sweet soul no sweet soul that was, was a, that was a last single yeah it's a bit of a hit soul asylum new york city automatic blues soldier blues wake up time for freedom and then i guess i had the the extended one because it did have medicine train as an 11th track on the the cd that i had back in the day okay uh, like, like i said they're they're all solid rock tracks I find it very interesting that the song uh, Soul Asylum, where is mm-hmm. that? The, 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 the track see. six, mm-hmm. you know, I, I listen to that song with everything else. But then if you look at the demos and you look at the notes in this thing, they called it cashmere for a while. Like, yeah, it does really have a cashmere vibe to it. Were they trying to mm. maybe not recreate it, but kind of channel that? Uh, they didn't spell it the same. But they did in a couple places. Yeah, that's one of the demos on disc four on the 30th anniversary. Correct. Cashmere, it, yeah. It beca- yeah, it became Sweet Soul Asylum. And it, it has that running through it. I'm like, okay, yeah, I see where you were going with that. I, I We talked about this uh, on the Oasis episode. I don't think it's so much a ripoff as more of a, like, tip of the cap to those who came you know those who inspired you you know they they were obviously huge led zeppelin fans mm-hmm. and so to to do that is kind of cool yeah they, like i said i don't think there's a i don't love every track exactly the same but there's no track that i would skip over absolutely not one of them i've listened to it straight through i hear you and- every time i played it and sweet soul sister that had the if well okay if you listen to it on rock radio, it had the keyboard intro. If mm-hmm. you listen to it on the singles, they cut that pretty severely. That was kind of cool at the beginning. It's got a cool rip. It's got a really cool, what Billy Duffy does uh, sometimes is have a second solo, which I love. Two solos are better than one. Yep. It, it's it's a great track. But yes, heavily edited on, in the single version, which I didn't like. 
Yeah. On this on this packaging, there's five discs and there's one mm-hmm. disc. Which one is it? I think it's the second one. That's got the edit ones. It's got Firewoman single edit, mm-hmm. ED single edit. Get rid of all of that. Yeah, so... Don't, <clears> ever, <throat> don't ever show that to me. 18 months or so ago, they did release this 30th and edition, 30th anniversary of Sonic Temple, which has, you know, the original record. And then it's got um, singles, remixes, extras is the second disc. They have two discs worth of demos mentioning Kashmir, which eventually became Soul Asylum. And a lot of kind of, you know, first versions or unfinished versions, maybe just a vocal track instead of what the vocal is really going to become. And the fifth one is Alive at Wembley Stadium, not Wembley, uh, I'm sorry, Wembley Arena, not Wembley Stadium, which is right next door. But being able to play, you know, some of this stuff off there, plus uh, Rain and She Sells Sanctuary, it's a pretty good little mix. But to me, the the most fun of these discs is the second one. Because, you know, all right, great. The, The first one is the record, which I know well because we played it so much back in the day. And then the second one, we've got the um, the singles and then the B-sides and stuff that, you know, didn't quite make it on the record and the remixes. And I love that the, the two Firewoman, there's the New York City rock mix and then there's the LA, the LA rock mix. And it just, I think that's cool because they did live in both those worlds. And, and Ian Asbury admitted he liked being in New York City with the Def Jam guys, you know, guys from different backgrounds, you know, the rappers and the rockers, they're all hanging out. I was hanging out with Rick Rubin. That's cool. But they moved, made the move to LA because there's just a good scene out there, especially for British rockers at that time, for hard rockers, certainly. And, and, and so the dichotomy of having those mixes of their big track, one that is very New York City. And, you know, also it was almost kind of industrial. There was almost a Nine Inch Nails thing going on at the beginning of that versus the LA one, which is a little more ethereal and longer and, you know, has some... Uh, crazy stuff in there. I, I don't know, but it, it kind of shows that it's, it's a band evolving from one coast to the other, from one nation to another. And it also is kind of cool when you talk about those two mixes about how, like that that NY the NYC mix is more like a club mix mm-hmm. that you could hear in a dance club. I'm like, well, that kind of works. Okay, it's not my favorite, but I can see how you could play that in a dance club and somebody who didn't listen to this music be like, what? What's that? Mm-hmm. And then to your point, the LA mix was more straight ahead rock, you know, Sunset Strip feel to it. Right. But it is cool to hear it a couple couple different ways on how to on how they interpreted it. it it's cool to hear the demos. I, I noticed that a lot of the on some of the demos, the vocals are off a little bit, like he's not hitting all the notes. Right. But I heard an interview with Elton John, and he said that the demo is really like. I mean, I don't do any painting, but if you paint. You sketch out what you're going to do, and then you paint it. That's what a demo is. It's right. just a real rough, let's find the corners and the ceiling, and then mm-hmm. we'll, if we like it, we'll go from there. And to be honest with you, most of the time, I'm not big into demos. Like, if, if you give me a, it's, okay, here's a re-release, and then we've got a whole disc worth of unreleased stuff, and it's all demos, I don't necessarily want to hear that. I, I was suckered into the Led Zeppelin ones, but part of that's just because... I didn't have them on CD, and I, I figured I might as well get the remastered. And then, yeah, give me whatever else you got. Sometimes there's a little gem in there. Sometimes it is cool to see how it was starting to go one way, and then they kind of brought it back and made what we know out of it. And, and that's what I really love is, is, yeah, most of the demo stuff, you're not listening. For me, I'm not listening to it to say, oh, that's a great track, but to say, uh-huh, okay, I see. You started at A, and then you said, meh, I like then you kind of pick it apart. I like this part and this part. We'll use that. This so we'll get rid of this and what it became. That's what I love about demos. 
Well, and that's cool. It's just, you know, sometimes I'm like, okay, I know what song this is. And now that I've yeah. heard it halfway through, not finished, can I just hear the finished version now? Can I just, <laughs> can I just hear the part, you know, the, the song that I like instead of, okay, this is where it was before it is what it is. But no, you're right. And it's, for people who love, if you love a certain album, you know, and it, this a five-disker is quite a lot of material but because it's their biggest selling ever worldwide i'm just so glad that there's so many b-sides and then they're you know those remixes are cool they've got a whole album or two worth of actual stuff including some demos that really did get towards the end it's a neat buy and it's the notes from the guys i guess my only regret on the notes is they didn't really get into they got into the the songs of the album for the most part, but they didn't really get into the stages. They didn't go through and review the demos and say, ah, oh, you can see here we were only doing this or we'd only gotten this far with it or that kind of thing. It, yeah. it was more kind of a read on what was going on at the time. And, and who knew that, you know, that's when Ian's father was dying and, you know, they're obviously having a hard time with He's having a hard time with that. They finish up the record and they get it ready to go out on the road. And I think they started as an opener and then they went out as a headliner yeah you know and uh, of course releasing singles along the way in videos i mean they're working hard in america but um and then eventually got back here and into europe but i don't know i mean when you see them on that stage doing that video when you see firewoman like those guys have got it made those are rock and roll stars they are doing it big time and then you realize no you know life is happening to them you know you're losing parents you're on different types of tours. You got substance things going on with both those guys. And that, again, the, the story is the same, you know, again and again and again. It, it's just, it, while it sounds, I think, like it, like the greatest thing on the, oh, to be on tour and to just go to all these places and play to all these people, it's a girl. Day in and day out, it's a grind. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if sometimes I'm not feeling it. I'm just, I don't want to do it. Well, I've got something that will make you want to get up and shout. Well, what is this? And then it becomes part of your daily routine. And I think the other thing too is once you start, once you start really making it big, a band that was once the same, everybody's the same, everybody's contributing, everybody, and then all of a sudden now you start to have stars. You know, mm-hmm. Billy and Ian emerge. They never really had a drummer, but you know now Jamie Stewart is like, well, now hey, wait a minute here. I'm the, you know, I've been in this band the whole time, but you don't really, you know, he doesn't really write. And so I think maybe he kind of got pushed to the side a little bit. And that's just how it goes over and over and over again is the fact that the record industry wants, they have to have a star. They have to have somebody, either one or two people out of the band who they promote as the, as the kind of the leaders and everybody else kind of gets pushed to the side a little bit. I don't know if there are some bands like maybe Aerosmith who they've been, they, they, there are people that are okay with that. Like, you know, I don't, and I know for Rush, Neil never wanted to do any of that stuff. He was totally never. fine with just, you know, doing his thing. But I think there are people who are like, no, I, I you know, just a part, much part of this band as everybody else. But for whatever reason, we can't sell you or that we already have too many people we're selling in this band. And so cracks just start to emerge. And Jamie decided to continue to live in England, whereas those guys went mm-hmm. to New York City and then eventually to L.A. And L.A. is a really long way away from England, you know. So and, and then they recorded in Vancouver. Now, Jamie was there and he had positive things to say about it. And, you know, uh, you know making his style fit what they were trying to do uh, on the record versus what they had done on Electric versus what they'd done on Love. But, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're a continent and and an ocean away, eventually you're going to feel out. And that was it after this for him. I mean, he had been on the first four albums, right? And then right. uh, in the meantime, yeah. 
and then um, did the big tour, and and then he was done. He kind of went on, I think, to produce and, and do some stuff, but kind of more have a, of a more normal life, like get married, have kids kind of thing, you know? That, that's the other thing, too, I was thinking about. You know, I was trying to work the math backwards. You know, if these guys were born in the 60s, 80s come along, now you're 20-something years old. You can't be 20-something your entire life. You are, other things are going to come up. Yeah, you're going to want to have a family. You're going to want to have some kind of stability in your life because, I mean, if you're a rock star – there's no 401k. There's no health insurance. There's right. no, I mean, it, while it's a, it's a fantastic ride to be on, I think some people just say, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to have some kind of normal life. And I think that's what Jamie's deal was. He, I think he went, he went on to do some producing. And I think it, from what I can see now, he's like a software developer or something like that in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he just, I mean, probably a dude that you would just run into at some kind of software concert uh, in a conference and, you know, or talk to him and say, wait, Jim, wait, you're not the guy that, oh my goodness. Okay. Forget software. We're talking 80s rock now. I don't even care. But you know what? If he called himself Jim Stewart, you know, he doesn't have the long hair, you know, I bet you wouldn't, I bet you wouldn't blink. I bet you wouldn't think that at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that would be funny to think like, yeah, this guy who's a, who's a father, you know, has a nine to five job once was in one of the biggest bands on the face of the earth. That would be a pretty cool, like, wait a minute, that was you. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah. Have a couple of, throw a couple of wild turkeys in him and see how he, if he would talk about it. But yeah, I think that at this point in time, they, they were also kind of stuck after this with another crisis of faith. What do we do now? And I know for a fact, I've seen this video for a million years because I had it on that. One of the, the packages they put out, I think it was Pure Cult. Mm-hmm. They never made a video for Sun King, right? Right, which I yeah. love. I love that song. It's a great song. On that compilation, they do put out, they put out a video of them from the, I think it was the Pink Pop Festival mm-hmm. in 1992. Okay, here we go. We're going to play Sun King. And oh no, what are you doing? The song is the same. The crowd is jumping up and down. But now Billy is wearing a blue flannel shirt and Timberland boots. And Ian has a red flannel shirt on. And I said, oh, now we're trying to be grunge. Now we're trying to fit ourselves into... Oh no 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 no! We're not we're not the hair metal guys. No no no! We're with this. We can sell this to the grunge people. And again, that's record people. I would imagine putting pressure on them to move that way at that point in time, and just just let them do their thing. Just let them play their music, and you know the fans will show up. Yeah, I wonder if they had never gone the hard rock route and kind of stayed to that goth ish thing they were doing. Would they have then be able to continue on during the grunge thing and been more accepted like, oh, things finally came around to you this way, right? Because they kind of got things to come around to them with the hard rock thing was happening. Okay, well, we can be hard rock too. And then hard rock was crumbled by Nirvana. But if they had maybe not had their big breakthrough with Firewoman and Sonic Temple, stayed on the small, maybe going gold, gothish route, and then by 91, 92, 93, then they make their big record in the wake of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that. You know, I wonder, maybe they're, maybe they, I don't know, who knows? It'd it, yeah. be totally different. I mean, we could play, you know, what might have happened any which way on any band. You know, I could do that based on what I had for lunch yesterday. <laughs> yeah, and it, 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 I, I've thought about that too. You know, it, it's kind of the, it's kind of the Metallica route of, you know, they basically quote unquote sold out with the black record and it made their, it, fans who had been there from the beginning angry but i mean that was part of their trajectory of being this giant rock band so i i don't know if they if they'd have stayed there 
who knows if they it, it kind of sounded like they didn't believe and want to do that anyway mm-hmm. like that that sound was not really what they were looking for i thought it was interesting too that that duffy in this book even in 1989 was saying we, it, he and ian were kind of on different pages mm-hmm. like he wanted to do he wanted to do one thing asbury wanted to do another thing so they kind of came together and found middle ground but I would have thought they were, you know, 100% in sync on this record anyway. I know later on they they kind of they splintered off, but it was e- even here they had to make concessions to each other to make the record. Well, and the fact of the matter is if you're Metallica and you sell out, but it sells 30 million copies, okay, well, I'm sorry we lost some of you hardcore guys, but we, <laughs> we just got like 20 million new fans. <laughs> Um, you know, and, uh, you know, everything we sell after that's going to be huge too. But, you know, the cult, they really only sold about a million or so in America. Yeah. I think maybe three million or so around the world. I think they did okay with it, you know, overall. That's why Billy thought, hey, we're on our way. We could be another Led Zeppelin. Here we go. But then Ceremony, I mean, do we know why they didn't get Bob Rock? Was he tied up with Metallica? That's exactly why. They, yeah. they wanted they wanted him back, sure. but he was not available because they they were just the the blackout was just getting beaten into the ground mm-hmm. for so long. And they, they had to make a move. So I think they got Richie Zito yeah. on there. And so yeah, it was just it was just not the same thing. Yeah, I mean in all due respect to Richie Zito, he's produced a lot of records, written songs for a lot of big time artists, you know, like mm-hmm. not just rock people, but like super Elton John, like Uber duper stars. But I, I don't know that he was the right fit for them. Um, certainly not at that time. And yeah, I mean, it's it's too bad that Bob Rock was on to something. They did something right with that record. If it sold a few million, still their number one selling album to date. Correct. To not be able to, to get back together with him, that kind of sucks. Yeah, they, I mean, did they, they made that Black album forever, right? They choked it to death until it was... Like, Correct. Perfect, but I guess it worked in the end, right? <laughs> and and Bob Rock did come back for a couple more records. I think he did he did the '95 Cult record, and he also did I think Hidden City with them. Mm-hmm. But they just could never capture the magic again. Unfortunately, you were talking about Ceremony that came out in, I believe '91 yeah, or '92 when, we when we were in school. Yeah, I knew. I had the bad feeling because I mean I was ready to rock. I was ready to just buy that record sight unseen. And it was coming out on a certain day. I was like, okay, here we go. Cool, 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 cool. I get to school's over with. Okay, I'm down to the to Park Avenue CDs. And what, what's going on here? It's Tuesday or, you know, whatever the day was that records came out. What, what's going on? Oh, no, it's delayed. And I said, as soon as he said that, I said, uh-oh, something's wrong with this. Something, they're having a problem. <laughs> Why is why is the record not coming out? And yeah, they were having problems at that point in time. Like any kind of anything that even had the stink of hair metal on it was just pushed to the side. I I like that. I mean, I, that record's got some good points to it. Mm-hmm. But I think at that point in time, the the, the record industry had no or the record uh, company, Sire Records they were on, had no real plans to push that at all. They, they had moved on from them. And it's too bad because, you know, you want to play the what-if game. How many records are out there that kind of just got put out? Eh, they didn't really promote it at all that you could find and say, hey, this is really good. Why did no one, why did nobody pick this up? Because it, you didn't have the, the information at that point in time. Yeah, that's why we... To pick it up. Yeah, that's why we like to talk about these things on the show. We can get together and talk right. about... Exile on Main Street or Fleetwood Match Rumors or something like that, you know, and, and hey, we do hundreds of shows. We may have to get around to those eventually. <laughs> but we want to uh, we want to talk about the stuff that we like, that we know Correct. is good, 
And okay, so it didn't sell 10 million copies. That that doesn't mean it's not great stuff, you know. And right. of course, Metallica's to- 30th anniversary of the Black Album is out this month. And uh, it's probably going to go multi-platinum. They also have a Metallica podcast on the Black Album that just started this week, Jackson. Yeah, I'm going to have to listen to that because I'd be very interested to see what they, what they would have to say on that. Uh, but going back to this record, th- this was basically, like you said at the beginning, this was the first record that I ever that I ever owned that was really mine. Mm. That it, you know nobody had told me about it. There wasn't really anybody at school listening to it, so it was like I know about something that you don't. Ha 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 ha. Right, it's not a classic. So, you know, it's, it's no, not something you heard no. on rock radio from years before or something like that. Yeah. Correct, correct. <laughs> and so it, it was really kind of, you know, you talk about making a band your own. This is when I made this band my own. And then you you worked it backwards to, wait a minute, they've got other records also? Hold on a minute. Let's go down there. And then once once I was hooked, I didn't care. I didn't listen to anything else. Like, I didn't preview anything. I'm like, you've got it. I'm buying it and I'm listening to it. And so, yeah, this, this was my door into, into this world. And I think this is a band that, it's funny that they, you said they only sold 2 million copies of this. I would have thought it would been more just because I've now I've, I've kind of got this, they're the greatest band in the world, you know, in my head. But it's, it's funny when you run into people who are fans of the cult and then you can, they can talk for hours and and it's, it's great. They're great to see live. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw them in, it was a weird deal. There was a guy on the radio in Connecticut and he was like, Hey, if you've got any questions about any bands, just email me. And I'll tell you, I was like, okay, tough guy. What about the cult? And this was like 99. And he came right back to me and he was like, Actually, they're playing a show in New York City at the Roseland Ballroom, uh, you know, in like next month. I'm like, well, I'm getting tickets to that. And Roseland is this dumpy little place, small, but they killed it. And and I think, thinking back onto it, I think it was pretty close to the Sonic Temple set because they didn't play anything from Ceremony or Forward. It was all just that and back. Well, Matt Storm was on the drums with them then, correct? That is correct, yes. So, look, Matt Storm did not record the record. They got Mickey Curry because he's Canadian and had worked with Bob Rock. He worked a lot with Brian Adams to... uh, to do the record, but Matt Sorum, who would eventually go on to fame and fortune with Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver, did the tour with them. And that's why on the fifth disc, which is live at Wembley, it's got some real drive to it. You could really tell that that's Sorum on the drums, even though I think some of the timing are, is off on some of the songs. Or they, they ramp up a little fast in some parts. It's like, this is a slow part, and then I'm just I'm kicking straight to 112 every time. Instead, maybe it needs to be 104 for this bit. Or, I'm not sure, but it's good. And the way they started with uh, in New with New York City, the the, the, the kind of the loudspeaker, the Hell's Kitchen, you know, I thought that was really cool. It's cool that and you got to see him with Matt Sorum. Yes, and and that uh, just as a quick aside, that's Iggy Pop too. So that's kind of cool. Also, who does the the voiceover? Oh, that's cool. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's it, it just another cool layer to it. Yeah, Sorum, he was officially in the band for a hot second for there, that, and then they did that, I want to say it was 2000's Beyond Good and Evil. He mm-hmm. was in the band, 
he recorded the record, but that was the only one. And then he was gone after that. Right. But yeah, it was, and I, and I think they, they did uh, the, the original, original, I don't know if any of this is on the record, but the original tracks were done by Eric Singer that, that went on to Kiss fame. Right. But then Bob's like, nah, that's not going to work. Uh, yeah. Which is interesting because he's awfully good. And then that's why we, I, we talked about this on the Kiss episode. I'm glad he got to a place where he could really make himself financially mm-hmm. in a good place because he, he was the, he was the go-to session guy for a long time and he kicked around with a couple of bands uh, one of them was Badlands with Jakey e. Lee from the Aussie band. That really never took off. So it was cool to see him land a permanent gig that he could hang on to. Yeah, I mean, talk about a guy. He, he toured with Black Sabbath for a while. He toured with Alice Cooper. Yeah, he, he tried to get into the cold. It just didn't work out for whatever reason. Badlands, was he maybe in Blue Murder for a little while? I don't know. He's been, he was in a lot of stuff. But yeah. you're right. It's good that he finally caught on, like, has a home and has not just a steady paycheck, but he's... <laughs> He, I mean, he doesn't make what Paul G make, but he does great. I mean, those tours make a ton of money. Uh, and they're touring again. They they did shows this past week. So good right. on them. That's great. Yeah. But it, it, it was interesting to me how this band could really never hold on to a drummer. They just always kind of just burned through them. Even though Stewart was a, a fixture there for, a, a, what, 84 until 89, he was there the whole time. They just could never – the drummer was just always a – revolving door there and and continues probably to this day i mean basically the cult is was and always will be billy and ian and then everybody else can come and go as they please right uh, but bob rock i mean he did such an amazing job on the sonic temple album he eventually came back for that 1994 the cult but i mean at that point the it, it had passed and billy and even were a mess well let's not i mean if you want to really hash some bad memories you're going to get into yeah. at that point in time. Yeah, they were they were very the relationship had frayed to the point where they no longer wanted to be next to each other, and that came to a head on one fateful night in Orlando, Florida, in Orlando. as we had tickets in hand, driving to the show, and it was canceled. And I think I think the show was canceled officially because somebody was sick is what came on, on over the radio. And then two days later, they were like, yeah, the band's over with. Everybody's going to rehab. Thanks. Have a nice day. Right. And yes. And so so basically that that record that Rock made in 94, I can't even imagine what an absolute mess that would have been. When you've got the two guys in the band who are still trying to work together but really not happy with each other, that could not have been a pleasant experience for anyone. No, but I mean, they did eventually clean themselves up a bit and, and get back together. <laughs> and, and Rock did, he did Beyond Good and Evil, but he also did Choice of Weapon, which I thought was the best record they've done in the last 25 years. Um, I agree. Really good return to form. And he also did Hidden City with them, which maybe wasn't quite as good as, as Choice of Weapon, but, uh, but was good nonetheless. Look, I got to see them on the 30th anniversary tour of this record. They uh, they did it, in, well I think they did it in the US but they did it in England as well and I got to see them in the what was once known as the Hammersmith Odeon, now called the Eventum Apollo or something not as cool. No, it's always, no, it's, that's always going to be the Hammersmith, stop that. Don't put a stupid name on it. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> they played more than just the record though, right? They did and, and, and unlike because they had done before and I saw them on the tour for Electric where they come out and they play Electric in its entirety and then they take a break and then they you know do some hits after that. They they didn't play the entire album, which which I'm kind of glad for because you know if it's okay. I mean it's it's 10 tracks, maybe 11 if you include yours. 
you know, that's a lot to get through. And not all of them are obviously going to be your favorites. But, I mean, a lot of them. Sun King, Automatic Blues, American Horse, Sweet Soul Sister, New York City, Edie, Soul Asylum. But, of course, Fire Woman, Durr. So, I mean, like seven or eight from the album. So they didn't, and they didn't do it in order, which, I, you know, I kind of like. Although I would have died to have seen Love, and they did that for Love before they did it for Electric. I would have died to see that in its entirety in order. But uh, uh, at any rate, it, it was cool. But Ian was in a little bit of a mood that night. Um, and, and Billy looked cool, as Billy always does. I've seen Billy, I've seen the cult three times. Uh, and this one was really neat for me because I was in Hammersmith. And I was uh, kind of in the balcony, but like on the first row. So I didn't have to stand up the whole time because no one was ever in front of me. And I'm kind of self-conscious, you know, I'm over six feet tall. I'm like, if I stand up the whole time, nobody behind me can has the option of sitting down, which I think if you're on the floor, you need to be up. But if you're upstairs, not as big a deal. So I could, I could sit there and chill and then, you know, see, and there were some kids like hopping around down there. And he's like, you know, if you don't make any noise, you know, we don't know. We don't get any reaction. We don't know if you're enjoying this or not. So you need to, you know, show some energy out there. And then a few songs later, he'd go out there and go, energy! Like he's yelling at the crowd to be more into what he's doing. I'm like, maybe you need more energy, Ian. I mean, you can't just rely on us. You know, it's kind of your job to set us off, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's a it's a symbiotic thing, but you kind of have to be the spark, don't you? I can't imagine there's anything worse as a performer than you not getting the feedback that you need from the audience. Right. Uh, but the, but the other kind of co- the cool part about that is is the fact that he was upset means that they he really had still had passion for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I already got paid. I already have your money. So, I mean, what do I care? I go out there and do a lackluster performance, say goodnight and go home. But the fact that you were upset means that you really do still enjoy going out there and feeding off that energy from the crowd to get you going. And yeah, I've been to shows like that before where people are like, hey, wait a minute, what? You know, are we drinking wine here and listening to air supply? No, we got to get into this because. Yeah, because I mean that's what you go for. You want to be sweaty and disgusting when you come out of that show because then you know you had a good time. And I saw them at uh, Stubbs in Austin, Texas, and they were doing like a pre-release party for that Beyond Good and Evil. Ah. There were no seats. I mean, this was basically just a lawn. I've been to Stubbs. And so, okay, yeah. So in the back, yeah, where every everything, everybody, there are no seats. Everybody's just kind of pushed up against each other. Mm-hmm. That was really cool because that was there was no. There was nowhere to sit down there. And so, and it was loud, loud, loud. We were probably about two blocks away and I heard this, this boom, boom, boom. Like, are they, are they warming up for this? Oh my God, is this going to be loud? And so, and then and the whole thing was too, we were talking to somebody from Stubbs and they were all bent out of shape because apparently they've got a pretty big setup there. Mm-hmm. And Billy and Ian were like, yeah, that's great, but we're bringing our own stuff. We're bringing our own soundboard. We're bringing our own monitors. Yeah, what you have is not what we're looking for. Ah. They wanted, they basically, they wanted to do a stadium show at a restaurant in downtown <laughs> Austin. So, I mean, it sounded amazing, but I could see how, like, yeah, I mean, I'm a rock star. And I intend to be treated that way and proceed in a manner <laughs> that, I'm so, yes. that I'm accustomed to, basically. That's so, right. and I think that's that's the thing is, you know, you're at South by Southwest, and you know, we got to get we got to get people in and out of here. We got to have twelve people in the next, you know, day and a half performing here. We don't really have time for this. You have time for it if I say you have time for it. <laughs> so, yeah. So I got to see Gary Clark Jr. at uh, at a small place there in. Uh, 
in Austin, but he went on really late and my wife had been working all day and she got me those tickets for free basically. So, you know, he didn't go on to like 1130 at night on a, on a school night. So we listened to a couple songs and left. I'm like, I want to stay, but I understand you've been working all day. And the only reason I'm here is because of you. So I'll, I'll go home with you. But there was a band that warmed up for them called California Wildebeest, which I of course never heard of. And so I listened to their set and, and it wasn't bad. You know, it was a little heavy metal. It was a little hard rock. Guys were obviously competent they weren't super flashy or anything but you know they were cool so then they're off and i see the guy walking through the crowd who's like the guitar player or whatever and i and he he walks by me and go hey man nice set you know he's like oh cool thanks you know he just started talking a little bit or whatever and i'm like oh he was a nice guy so then i went over in the corner near their merch or whatever and it was sitting over there we're kind of waiting for gary clark and the guy saw me and he grabbed a t-shirt and he threw it at me a california wildebeest t-shirt he's like hey thanks man i'm like oh no that's cool man thanks a lot well <laughs> So then, of course, the next day, I want to do some research on California Wildebeest to see who the hell they are, because I've never heard of these guys. <laughs> and that guy was like a producer in Hollywood, and he was one of the producers of the first Saw movie, and he was a producer on like one of those, you know, bullshit talent shows, like America's Got Talent, or okay. America's Got Singing, or whatever, you know, those things are. <laughs> and, and this is kind of like his passion project. He's got this band, you know, and they play music, and they like to gig out whenever they get the chance. My wife's like, this only happens to you. This always happens to you. Like, you meet Frankie Benali in LAX. Like, that doesn't happen to anybody else. It always happens to you. You're like, I shake Nico McBrain's hand at the Ryder Cup because everyone at the Ryder Cup's like, who's that guy with the long hair? Why is he here? Like, that's Nico McBrain. <laughs> how could you? And, and, this, and that's, the, that's the crazy part to me is, well, and you and me is, how would you not know Nico? Oh, boys and girls, how are you today? Like, you, you just, uh, anyway. But the but the, the California Wildebeest guy, it's funny how this, everybody wants to be a rock star. Every single person wants to. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can, you try. And so few people actually do. And and for a, for a time in the late '80s and early '90s, the cult were worldwide rock stars. They toured the world, and and I think I really kind of think they never lost it. In my opinion, I still think they're rock stars. I, I bought everything that they've ever done. Of course, you know, before that or after that. I still enjoy it. I still think they can write great songs. I just think that they just kind of suffer from the getting lumped into the late 80s hair metal. Like, oh, yeah, that the, they weren't really that good. No, they really are that good. Listen to it. Listen to it with an open mind, and you're, I think you're going to like it. Yeah, it's kind of the double-edged sword. It's like, all right, you shed that kind of goth thing. We're just a hard mm-hmm. rock band like Guns N' Roses. That's what we do. And then it's like, if you're like them, we don't want you anymore. You got to be, you know, mm-hmm. unattractive and unhappy and tuned right. down and wear some flannel. All right, well, you know me. I'm a big B-Sides guy. I want to see yep. what wasn't released, what was close and that kind of thing. From disc two, take out the single versions, I guess. But from disc yes, two, what, what are your kind of favorite things up there? I mean, I, I already mentioned the, the mixes that we like for Firewoman. Talk about a band trying to find its sound. Messing up the blues would never get on any Colt album. And yet, I thought it was really cool to hear that slide guitar that Billy's playing. And Ian does have a bluesy kind of voice if he wants to use it that way. I thought that may not be a great Colt song. As far as it would fit well on a record, but I thought it was super cool. Well, that's why it's great to have a compilation like this because it, this is kind of a, an odd tangent. But they were talking about what's his name from the Partridge family, 
David Cassidy Cassidy from the Parsons family. Apparently, like, when they yelled cut, he would go and play the guitar. And who was the messed up kid, the little one? Bonaducci Mm -hmm. said he could have been Jimi Hendrix. He was, he would just, he was so fantastic at playing the guitar, but they'd never let him do it because he had to be a teenile. Same thing with this. This is a great track, but yeah, you come to them and say, hey, we want to put this blue. That's not going on the record. That doesn't sound anything like any of the rest of this stuff. That's right. You can't do that. So it is really cool to, to hear them, yeah, go into, you know, kind of a side deal with, yeah, I mean, yes, we're hard rock, but I mean, who doesn't love the blues and who doesn't want to be, you know, play the slide guitar and sing with that, you know, the bluesy kind of rasp in your voice. Mm-hmm. Let's see what else is on here. We've got, uh, I kind of like that, the the Edie Chow Baby acoustic. I think mm. that that was probably some kind of early, like just messing with it before they added everything else on it. That that could have been the core. That was kind of cool to, yeah, like to hear. The river the, to the, me the seemed lot. like it was just unfinished. It was just kind yes. of meandering to me. Bleeding yeah. Heart Graffiti was more of a song to me, but the, the river is like, they just at some point stopped, said, okay, that's, we're not finishing that, you know. No, just yeah. cut, yeah. Just yeah. cut it off from there. That's right. But then, if you want to go down to the, let's see, what is this? Disc four, mm-hmm. the Crystal Ocean. I had never heard that song before. I like that a lot. That's a kind of a cool. It, it almost kind of had. It, 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 it kind of reminded me of. It, uh, we all need someone we can lean on. Oh, yeah. Like it kind of had that vibe to it, mm-hmm. you know. So again, you know, kind of channeling. The, the Stones, uh, Spanish Gold Spanish is Gold. a really cool song. Yeah. That's a real, I'm like, oh, again, that would not have fit on the record, but it, it's a really cool, uh, it's cool to hear him play the nylon. You can really hear the nylon strings on mm-hmm. that one. That's a great track. Yeah. So, so stuff like this, I mean, it, to be completely honest with you, there's five discs on here. Right. If they'd have made it 10 disc one with even more stuff, I'd have listened to that too. I know you would have. Yeah. I, I understand. Yeah. You know. <laughs> You know, like I could just, I could just hang around and just listen to them, just fool around. You know, oh, let's play this. Oh, let's play, you know, this song. Let's play that. It, well, it just the Soldier Blue, the Tom Merman uh, extended mix, leads me to believe that maybe that was being considered as a single. Yeah, from, back in the day, you know, because I'm like, you know, this song's pretty good, and like you put this into a mix about it. Why would you do that on a deep album track? You know, I, I don't know, um, but no, I mean, some of this stuff had been on Rare Cult for mm-hmm. years. Of course, you have the super uber deluxe box set rare called. I just had the one-off disc. But, you know, even Medicine Train, which is, um, it was on the CD that you had. Most CDs had that on there. It wasn't necessarily not if you had it on tape or, or record, you didn't have that. So just having that and having the early version of that, I thought was interesting. Look, it, it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff to take in. It's not for everybody, but if you are a cult fan, and let's face it, a lot of people this is what they know of the cult, right? It's just Sonic right. Temple, Firewoman, maybe Edie, and like especially in America, I feel like she sells Sanctuary is more their calling card over here in Europe. But in America, it's absolutely Sonic Temple uh, and Firewoman. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, if you if you like that, if you really thought that was a great album. You would love this. And the other, the, the cool part too is they have the the live stuff at the end, right? What is this? Nine tracks mm-hmm. from that tour. They could have done, they could have, I mean, they toured the world. They could have been anywhere. But the fact that they picked the Wembley show 
kind of cool because they are a UK band. They are, you know, back home to play in front of the home crowd. I mean, it could have been from Toledo, Ohio, but it's just cool that they picked that one. Good to be home. Yeah. And it even yeah. really said that's part of my ambition, like just playing Hammersmith. That's that's not good enough. You know, I, I want to play the big one and to, to play Wembley in London. Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal, you know, and I can't wait to finally get to go see a show there at some point. Um, <laughs> We hope. I've had tickets to shows there. None of them have come to pass yet. Aww. Um But uh, but we'll we'll see. But I also kind of think too that it, when I saw this being a five disc set, I was like, well, would they would they have enough material to have five discs? And I think the answer is yes. I don't think there's anything. They don't really retread anything. They've got the, it's just different versions of stuff. They do have the like I said before the single versions that I don't really care for because they're just truncated i mean i want to hear the whole song the way that you intended it to but yeah to hear the demos to hear the stuff the the stuff that they didn't do the b-sides it just kind of it fills in the gaps to what how they were thinking at that point in time i agree and and i and like i said i like the mixes it seems to be more of a european thing but the cult had a lot of remixes obviously she sells sanctuary has like a dozen on its own they've always kind of done that and and had maybe disco or club mixes that are always going to be more popular with a certain set not just europe but but you know a different fan base i guess you would say so that you've got all those in there you've got a nice little live bit in there and then all those demos uh, some of which became songs we know some of which uh, you know wow wish they may have done a little bit more with that right right Right. Yeah, it, it is It is cool because, yeah, I, I think they, they, I mean, this could have even been a double album when they put it out. It would have never sold. Right. It would have never gone anywhere. But they have that, they have that material. And, and to your point, I think that is more of a European thing to have extra tracks, to remix things, to put them out in different ways. Mm-hmm. We just don't do that in the United States. It's like you get one thing and that's it. Yeah, you get you get a single. Well, did you have? You get a shitty B side. You're not going to use anything, yeah. any value on the B side. Right. Fart on the snare yeah. drum, whatever, you know, and then it goes up the chart or it doesn't. Whereas, you know, in Europe, like, yeah, we'll remix this, we'll extend it, we'll get this into clubs, we'll get into nightclubs and stuff like that, and, you know, see if we can get a different crowd into it. There's, I mean, that's, and that's the point is there's so many different ways to interpret a song or, or to arrange it, I guess, is, is really the way to put it. Because you can go in a lot of different directions. Artists have these choices they have to make. And sometimes the producer is there to help. And so that's where you get these cool different mixes or edits or, or whatever. that the cult. I mean, all those manner sessions, all those different things they've had out there all the years. That's why to be a cult completist, it's not easy, but it's fun to track all this stuff down. <laughs> well, and you're talking about the mixes, too. It's kind of cool because, you know, th- this album particular okay so it was written recorded and produced by bob rock cool period end of story but then you get these tracks where other producers will take them and then mix them and it's it's interesting to hear another person's take on the same song and so that that's always been cool to me you know there are guys that that's all they do is they remix things and to hear that you know you maybe you said to yourself as a producer I like it, but it would sound better if you did it this way. Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of cool. And I'm sure that's the same way for the artist, too. Like, I would have never thought about that. But, yeah, that's a cool twist on the original material. Well, and, you know, even this, like, if you look on Wikipedia, it says, on Russian and Eastern European pressings, there was a bonus track, Lay Down Your Gun version 2, which is not even on, was it the 53 or however many songs are on this (laughs) 
on this <laughs> release that we have. So it's like it's not even every every everything. There's it's, you know yeah. there's some other things out there. Why was King Contrary Man and Electric Ocean on the Saudi Arabian you know version of it? Well, it's because they wanted to get some songs in from the older albums on there. You know, so it, it's I think it's kind of cool that you have to track stuff down. Oasis is kind of big into that. Like you can't get everything just on the record. You got to do your homework and get out there and search and find. I guess uh, in America they just like we want to sell them what you've got. So right. let's just put it on the right. album and sell it. But I feel like and, more... and then move on to the next thing. I think that yeah. this is cool because you can revisit it more than one time and kind of get a better appreciation for it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have to admit that before the show, I probably hadn't listened to this album in a while because, you know, it was burned onto my psyche. But to hear it again, it really it's cool because I love the music, but it's also cool because it brings back memories. I'm like, man, I remember. Yeah, I remember having this. I remember going to the record store. I remember trying telling my friends in high school, you know, oh, you got to check this band out. And a couple of them saying, oh, forget it. It's not the Grateful Dead. If <laughs> And then, then having some people come back and say, you know what, you're right, this is fantastic. You know, make, making tapes for people because you had it on CD and you could do that and turning people on to new music. Yeah, it, it, it's cool and it's uh, I, I think it's aged pretty well, in my opinion. I mean, it's still, like, it, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, it's straight ahead, guitar-based rock and roll, and the riffs are fantastic. And I, I, I don't think there's a bad song on this record. No, my, my buddy Davis was like you. He, well, I'd seen the videos. So like, oh, yeah, they're good. But he got way into them. And he uh-huh. he found all those manor sessions and the old stuff. And, he, and of course, then he got me into it. And then once we ended up living together at college, I'm like, oh, like, this guy's into the cold. He's all right then, you know. He, <laughs> I can deal with this guy. He, he's okay because he's... He, <laughs> He's got a, a basis, you know. He's got a background. He's uh, he's yeah, he's not one of these st- stupid, you know, pop people. <laughs> I mean, do I sound like an asshole? You know, I don't feel like one. I'm just, you know, if you're Hell, pop music and that's know, it. That's 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 the thing is, you know, you have to you have to have it. it definitely, you're tasting music, and it's funny to to go through Twitter now and to see all these people on there that I mean, I don't know them personally, but it, there is that common thread and stuff that I follow is. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by the kind of music they listen to. Mm-hmm. And so it is funny to, to have that common. I don't know this person at all. I've never met them before. But you kind of have that common ground of shared experiences. And I think music definitely is a big one. Movies, too. But, yeah, just kind of who are you? Well, I listen to this kind of music. Oh, okay. Well, cool. Let's. Uh, I, I feel better right off the bat. Yeah. You know, it's like connecting the guys on the Shout It Out Loudcast. I mean, you know, they're right. about our age. Okay, so we may be a little bit different, and they're way into Kiss. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. they know more about Kiss than than most anybody on the planet, and that's okay. They'll never run out of stuff to talk about. But it's like, okay, they're our same age, so I understand their context of where Kiss was in their life. You know, right? Having the toys, seeing the Dynasty record, you know, having them take off the makeup, go through the eighties, seeing them in concert and stuff like that. You know, it, it, you you never meet them, but you feel this connection. It's like. Yeah, yeah, I know something about you. We share something that not everybody shares. And the cool part about that is, if you get, if you're a fan of the thing A, and then you you meet somebody who is also a fan of thing A, but knows way more about it than you ever did. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, no kidding. Well, I kind of thought that was true, but I never knew. Yeah. So it, it's just the the knowledge that you can impart to people is pretty cool too, and and to have that camaraderie with someone that you've never actually met before is, is interesting to me. Well, I've met you, Jackson. and uh, That is true. And you have educated me on the cult. Uh, this classic 
Sonic Temple. Can't believe it's now, it's about to be 32 years old, which makes us pretty old, I gotta say. But uh, it's been great. It's been, I'm glad that you know we were able to review one of your very favorites. One that was important to me too, but it's it was a touchstone, I feel like, in your life, kind of defining who you were as a rock and roll fan. I think you're absolutely right. I, I definitely listened to rock music before this. But yeah, this this was one that really kind of focused it in and took it to made me want to find out more about the bands that I'd never heard of before. I think that was the big thing for me too. Is you know. They, finding out that there were other avenues to go down. I, I will always love the Rolling Stones. I will always love Led Zeppelin, ACTC. But there are, you know, you can branch out on the tree from there. And mm-hmm. that that's really what this taught me is, hey, wait a minute. I, there's other things here. I can, you just got to keep digging, keep keep, find, you know, keep finding different things, keep talking to people. You know, you're going to have some misses. You're going to talk to people and say, oh, I love this whatever record Uh, okay not as much as you do but thanks (laughs) but yeah just keep just keep just keep digging around you're gonna find stuff that's cool well thanks for checking out the 40th edition of the ugly american werewolf in london rock podcast folks i hope you enjoyed what we shared with you here on the colts classic album sonic temple still their biggest seller to date and very important in the formative teenage years of one mr action jackson pretty important for me too but for action it was really a page turner it was really a seminal moment that really kind of changed his perception of rock and roll and his ability to find new and interesting rock and roll not just what the classic rockers had been feeding us since birth it was a lot of fun for us to walk through that i'm really glad i got to see them on the 30th anniversary tour of sonic temple last year at hammersmith that was fun for me my only show at hammersmith to date as usual folks do we get something right do we get something wrong do we miss the point do we leave out your favorite part you have to let us know tweet us or dm us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72 and make sure you check out all past episodes and all the ways to find us at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn l-i-b-s-y-n dot com of course next week we are going to dive into the charlie watts tribute and take on an album that was very important to me and jackson in our college years and that was let it bleed by the rolling stones one that's probably overdue for us to review and we figure charlie's passing is the perfect opportunity to do so so hopefully you'll check us out for that make sure you subscribe and download on apple spotify amazon google play anywhere you get your podcasts. That's it for me. To all you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 